0: hello everyone i'm paul nadeau today i thought i would talk a little bit about dignity and respect the importance of giving people dignity and respect in a world that is so so much in conflict nowadays people are just angry with one another and people are shouting these terrible things they are there's a lot of racism going on there's a lot of just evil stuff and politics are separating people, the pandemic has separated people, the religious beliefs have separated people, sexual preferences have separated people, identity has separated people. We take a look and we see so many angry people with one another and we imagine what it is that we could possibly do to change the situation. Well I believe that change comes from within. We have to be willing to change in order to change the world. That starts with you. That starts with you and me. It starts with the way that we treat one another, the way that we provide dignity and respect, the way that we handle situations that come our way. It really comes down to us. Why worry about the rest of the world when we have to worry about ourselves first? So let's talk about ourselves. I'm gonna tell you a story. The story is a true story. It happened to me back in 2005. In 2004, I'll go back a little bit earlier, I was on the police department and I was working as an instructor at the police learning center. And I was teaching police officers the importance of interrogations and negotiations. And an opportunity came my way to asked to go to the Middle East as a peacekeeper and train Iraqi police officers during the Iraq War. In 2005, Iraq was at war and Iraq was in desperate need of police cadets to protect their country. Their country was being bombarded, lots of violence in their country. Well, they were at war. So when this opportunity in 2004 came my way to apply to become a peacekeeper, I gave it a lot of consideration. I thought to myself, this is uh, an opportunity for me to, to do my part in the fight against terrorism. And I went to my family, my wife and my two children at the time, and I told them that I was wanting to put myself out there go down to Jordan. That's where the peacekeeping mission was going to be. And I wanted to do my part to help fight terrorism, become a peacekeeper, and to train the Iraqi police cadets. I wasn't going to go without the permission of my wife and my two children. And they talked about it. It meant me leaving and, and being deployed for a minimum of six months. Not to mention that I could be killed, right? Iraq was at war. This was a war area I was going to be deployed to. Anything could happen. It took them a while to come up to a decision, but they agreed to let me go. And I think that it came down to our belief that we can all do something to help others. And what I was going to do is going to do my part to help in the fight against terrorism. So I was deployed in January of 2005 and I went to the Jordanian International Police Training Center. There I became an instructor. I had been an instructor and this is what gave me an open door to apply for the job and by the grace of God I was given this opportunity. I was selected from across the country to go down. There were eight of us that were selected to go down and I happened to be one of them. And what a great opportunity. I was so grateful. And I was scared. I was scared because I was tuning in to CNN, reading the news, and everybody in the Middle East, to my belief, was a terrorist. Everybody was a terrorist. And I was probably going to go and, and die within the first week. And I was very frightened. Uh, when I left, I thought to myself, it might be the last time that I would see my family. And I... Gathered the courage to go and to do the very best that I possibly could. When I did arrive, as I said, I became that instructor. I had uh, two other international instructors that were under my umbrella, and we were going to be teaching human rights and criminal investigations in our class. Now, here's the situation Iraq was at war, and they were in desperate need of police cadets. So at the Jordanian International Police Training Center where I was training the cadets, they had 3,000 Iraqi police cadets come eight weeks. Every eight weeks, 3,000 police cadets would come to the Jordanian International Police Training Center to be trained on how to survive, how to investigate criminal activity, how to use firearms, how to deal with explosives, how to treat each other humanly. There was a number of different courses that they would go through. And I had a class of about 50 to 60 police cadets come into my area every two weeks to be trained on criminal investigations and on human rights. So every two weeks I'd get a fresh class of cadets. Now these cadets ranged in the ages between believe it or not 16 and probably 70. That was quite the age range and we had all kinds of well people from different walks of life. Some of the cadets did not know how to read or write whereas other cadets came to us with university degrees. Iraq was in such desperate need for police cadets. They were scooping up people from the streets. If you were able-bodied, you could hold a gun, you could find yourself on a bus on your way to uh, a, a training center. The training center, the Jordanian International Police Training Center. Now, the training center was paying the cadets for being there for eight weeks. It was $100 a week for being there. They were given $800 American dollars for being there. So it was very appealing to a lot of these young and older men because that was money that many of them never dreamed of ever seeing. That money was a lot and could take care of their family for months and months, even years. As you can imagine, in Iraq, in some places, they were dirt poor. And some of them were coming from small villages where their only source of income was selling a couple of coffees a day to passerbys in order to try to feed their family. And many of the men had uh, one or two wives and several children and they were barely making it by. So imagine being given an opportunity to go to a police training center for eight weeks and making money like you never believed possible. And that was the reality of some of these men who came. Now we weren't supposed to get cadets who were that young. We, weren't, we were supposed to get cadets who were 18 years of age and older. And I think the limit was 60 years of age. But the cadets were coming in regardless because Iraq wasn't able to examine their backgrounds or find out who they really were other than their identity, their names. They couldn't vet these cadets enough. So we were getting Sunnis and Shiites of all ages and all backgrounds educationally. And regrettably, we were also getting men who were suffering from mental illness, men who were suicidal because again, Iraq couldn't vet these cadets properly. So we were getting depressed people who were scooped up pretty much from the streets and taken to this police training center where they had no idea what was going on. I want you to also imagine something else, that many of those men who came to the police academy miles and miles away from their their country, we were located apparently in a secret place in the middle of the desert, it wasn't that secret. It was one road going into Iraq and we happened to be on it. And uh, you could find us easily enough, which meant that terrorists could find us as well. A police training academy with 3,000 police cadets and dozens and dozens of international instructors all in one location. What a great target for terrorists, right, you would think? And they thought so too. So as an instructor, as an international, we were warned that we could come under attack at any time. There could be a missile that would be launched right into the middle of the academy and everybody could die. We were told that. Now, when we have 3,000 police cadets, many of them have never been away from home, and now they find themselves miles and miles and miles away from home, never having even been on an outing away from their family for one night. Can you imagine this? In North America, where you are in the world, wherever you happen to be watching from, you might've been on the holidays. You might've gone to, well, you might've gone to, school away from home you might have gone on holidays and just been away from your home but many of these men had never been away from their homes they've never been away from their families and now they were away from their families for eight weeks you can imagine the loneliness it sets in the just the feeling that you're disconnected from the people that you've always been surrounded with so there was a lot of depression and sadness that went along with the stay that these men were uh, exposed to having to be away from their home. I mentioned to you that we had Sunnis and Shiites and they didn't always get along as you can well imagine. There's been a history there and I couldn't begin to explain to you uh, why and, and, and what it all involves but I know that there was a lot of anger between these two. We also had something else drop in to the mix. We had terrorists who had infiltrated their way into the academy very easily. All they had to do was grab a police uniform, sign up or jump into one of those buses and they found themselves at the academy. Imagine this, we had Sunni sites and terrorists in one place. And the terrorists were there for a reason. Not only were they getting paid $800 for being there, they were getting trained. They were getting trained by international instructors on weapons, self-defense, explosives, a number of other things. They were learning police tactics, police techniques. They had a police uniform that when they went back home, they could easily use to go from one place to another unchallenged. You show up in a police uniform and the police are probably going to beckon you in to wherever it is that you're going. So imagine that scenario and the terrorists knew it. Some of the terrorists were getting their instructions from home. And although they were not allowed to bring cell phones into it, 2005, yes, we did have cell phones. It wasn't just tin cans. We had had cell phones. And we were not supposed to have any for the cadets. But, well, they got smuggled in. And the cadets were, the terrorists, were receiving their instructions from their cells and there was a plan to kill internationals. We were made aware that this was a very big possibility because we would have in our classrooms terrorists. And as much as our small security division was doing their very best to find out who the terrorists were and to extract them, to send them back home in custody, it wasn't an easy thing to do. We had a small security department They were doing the very best they possibly could. And the instructors like myself were on high alert that we should be aware that we could have these terrorists among our groups. So again, let's get back to my classroom, 50 to 60 men, Sunnis, Shiites, and terrorists. They had a schedule from eight o'clock to four o'clock to be in the classroom, but they were up at about 4.30 4.30 in the morning and they were doing exercises. Some of them had never exercised a day in their life. And now they were up at 4.30. They were having to do two hours of physical activity before they came to class. Can you imagine that? And then they would have their breakfast after their physical activity. And then they would come to class at 8 o'clock ready to fall asleep. And if you were a boring teacher you were a boring instructor, that's exactly what they would do. They would fall asleep. They were sitting in these very uncomfortable chairs in hot classrooms. We had jugs, these five-gallon jugs of water in the back of the classroom, and the cadets would be drinking from these jugs. We went through several of them a day, and my job was to teach these cadets and to make sure that there wasn't any conflict and to make sure that they weren't going to kill each other and to stay alive myself. So I imagined what would it be like if I were one of those cadets, that my country was at war, that I was away from home for the first time in my life, uncertain whether or not I was gonna die when I went back home because I had chosen to become a policeman. What would it be like for me to be there listening to an instructor from another country when another country was there at war with me. How would I feel? Wow. I'd feel pretty bad. I'd feel angry. I'd feel a number of different things. In fact, 9-11 had happened, right? And some of the instructors were treating some of these police cadets like animals. They were yelling and shouting at these police cadets, calling them every name in the book and blaming them for the attack, the 9-11 attack. And these cadets knew it, that they weren't appreciated, that they weren't welcomed, and that some of them just absolutely hated them. So here I am, about ready to welcome a class of 50 to 60 police cadets, imagining what it must be like to be in their shoes. And I think we have to do that. I think it is so powerful to imagine what it would be like to be in the shoes of the other person. I did this when I was working in the Special Victims Unit. I was a detective in the Special Victims Unit and I could imagine what it must be like for a young girl, a woman, a man for that matter who had been sexually assaulted and now they had to speak to a police detective, a male police detective on top of that about what had happened to them. And the male detective like myself would be asking for the details of this horrific, horrific incident. And I... Empathized, and I tried to put myself in their shoes and imagine what that would be like. In the police academy about ready to instruct 50 or 60 Sunnis, Shiites and terrorists I imagined what it would be like to be them. So I decided that I was going to welcome them in a warm and confident way. So I would greet them and I would put my hand over my heart and I would say my name is Paul, I'm from Canada, and I am going to be your instructor for the next two weeks. I want to make your stay here pleasant. And I want to help you. I want to teach you what I know, so that you may be able to apply it in your own country. I'm here to treat you with dignity and respect, and I would expect the same from you. I would like this to be a pleasant experience for you. I'll make every effort in doing so, and I hope that you all enjoy being here and I'm here for you. So that was my spiel to the cadets. And uh, I followed through. I taught them and I made it fun. I was in acting at the time, I'm still in acting. And I used to imagine, how can a lesson really sink in to somebody who's never learned how to read or write or study? Well, what if I got the cadets to role play, say an arrest? Because I was teaching them criminal investigations and part of that was the arrest. So I would teach a lesson. Okay, here's a scenario. There's been a, a theft in a store and you've been called as the police to go and investigate. And this cadet here or this person has been accused of the crime and there's your witness. So go on out there and show me what you've learned. So I want you to play the part of the police officer. I want you to play the part of the criminal. And I want you to play the part of the witness. And I had taught the lesson and I would have them go out and do their stuff. Man, they loved it. They absolutely loved it. They got up and some of them even got dressed for it. If I were to give them an assignment the day before, I'd say, okay, tomorrow, Abdul, you're going to be the police officer, and Muhammad, you're going to be the, the thief, and I'm going to get two other people to be witnesses, and I would give them all their assignments. They would go, and they would actually role play in their barracks, and the next day they would come, and some of them would have sheets, and they would just, like when I talk about they, they, they'd have Bed sheets, and they would wrap themselves up in it and they would have fun and they would play and I went one step further I said okay this is great after you guys do this I'm going to evaluate you on how well you, you did how much you actually got from the lesson and after that I'm going to pick one of you to teach the classroom what you just went through to teach all the steps of that in which you just learned so I'm going to sit in Abdullah's chair today and Abdullah you are going to be the teacher and Abdullah would go to the front of the classroom and be the teacher he would teach us the steps of a proper investigation a proper arrest we had a hoot so I kept them awake because I knew that they were already tired when they got to me at 8 a.m. and we didn't have conflict in the classroom We didn't have the Sunnis and the Shiites yelling and screaming at each other or bashing their heads in or doing anything. They were getting along and actually, we'd have a lot of laughs. When three o'clock rolled up, I still had another hour to teach. And it occurred to me that the day is long, for them especially. So I decided that I would take the last hour to encourage the cadets in my classroom to have some fun and at the time and which is still very popular today American Idol was just getting launched and we had a Canadian Idol here in Canada the television show and people would get up and they would sing and uh, everybody they would be judged on their singing and everybody would have a good time right so I decided that I was going to bring this into the classrooms what I said to the cadets is does anybody here know how to sing or tell stories And when I first did this with my new class, you could see the arms crossed and the faces kind of looking at each other like, sing, tell stories, like, what are you after? And I said, no, because does anybody here know how to sing and tell stories? I had a language assistant because uh, they were Arabic and I'm not. And so my my language assistant would translate for me and i could see maybe one or two hands raising and i jumped on and i said okay great let's see what you got and i'll tell you some of the singing that came out of these cadets was absolutely beautiful and i could see the smiles on everybody's face we enjoyed the singing we enjoyed the performances and some of the other cadets who were listening would go to the back of the classroom and they'd pick up those five-gallon jugs of water and they would start using them as drums. It was beautiful. Some of the stories were hilarious. At least I think they were. Some of the songs that were being told, uh, sung and, and some of the stories that were being told, the cadets were laughing. I didn't know what they were saying, so on one occasion, I turned around to my language assistant, I said, what's going on? They're laughing so much. What's happening? And the language assistant says, well, It was an arranged marriage and it was the night of their marriage and she's about to take off her face veil and she did and she looked like a goat and of course all the cadets were laughing at this i guess they could probably relate and we just had a great time so this was the atmosphere that i created in my class i remember on one occasion there was one cadet that came in it was a new class Uh, Another two weeks had gone by, four weeks had gone by. This one cadet came in and he had a bodyguard with him. That wasn't unusual because depending on your position in a particular tribe, you could walk in with a bodyguard and this cadet had one. He sat towards the front of the classroom and he looked at me, never really smiled. He just kind of gazed at me and I would teach my lessons. I would do the songs and he just took it all in. When he got up, his bodyguard would get up, they would leave. Never thought much of it. After about the third or fourth day that he was there, he decided to stay after class, after every other cadet had left, and he told his bodyguard to step outside. He started to speak to me in English, and he said, Mr. Paul, what do you think about the war? And we sat, and we chatted. We had a coffee, and we talked about that. He stayed every night after class to talk to me more and more and we developed this friendship so he was only with me for two weeks but every night he would spend some time after classroom talking with me about the state of the world my thoughts where i came from i would ask about his family all this and that was the extent of our relationship he went on to another class after his two weeks with me i had another class of cadets come in and life went on as it was planned to go on. In the time that led from having met him, a few weeks went by and I had an opportunity to apply for the position of an advocate and counselor in the academy. It was a very highly sought after job because I would, if I got the job, I would be helping cadets to improve their circumstances in the academy better sleeping arrangements, better food, um, trying to entertain the troops, doing all kinds of things. And about 17 other international uh, peacekeepers applied for that position. And I was fortunate enough that I got it. I was so grateful. I got the position. I worked with another man, uh, a Finnish officer by the name of Jadimo. Jadimo was about a foot taller than me, just a wonderful human being, great guy. And we got along so well, he became one of my very, very best friends. And he was just such a beautiful human being, still is today, we keep in touch. And that was 2005, and it's now, when I broadcast this, it's 2023, so we're still buddies. Now, I would be available for any cadets to come in during the day to talk about their situation. Some of them were very lonely, wanted to talk about uh, their conditions, wanted to talk about just, they, just needed somebody to talk to sometimes and that was me and I was available to them and this one particular cadet used to come in quite regularly and he liked me and he was just lonely and we would talk and I would encourage him just one more day keep going at it just keep going at it one day at a time you can make it he wanted to stay but he was depressed he was a little bit down I wouldn't say depressed he was down and I would try to encourage him on one day he came and he said Mr. Paul He said there's going to be an attack in the academy and it's going to come from within. There are cadets who are arming themselves and they're going to kill internationals and I wanted to let you know and I said thank you and and he went for the day and I went to our security with this information and I told them I said we are going to come under attack and they said yeah we heard something about that but All we can do is put everybody on high alert, so the internationals got put on high alert. It's not like you can leave when you're a peacekeeper or a soldier or whatever. You're there, you're at war, and you're not going to go just because the going is going to get tough. You're there and you're going to stay, but we were on high alert. So a few days went by, Yadamo and I, we didn't live on the academy grounds. We drove in from Amman to the academy as did the other internationals. But Yadamo and I would get there earlier than every other cadet, or sorry, every other international, is simply because we had the job of being advocates and counselors, and we had a list of different cadet names that we wanted to run by the director as cadets that should be repatriated to their home sent back to their home because they were suffering from mental illness or maybe they had been sexually assaulted viciously assaulted in their barracks the night before there were a number of different reasons why some of these cadets had to go back and some of them were suicidal so we would go to the director's office before any of the other internationals showed up at the academy we would talk to the director we would make our cases the director would decide which ones were leaving and then we would go back to our room to our office and we would wait to open the doors at eight o'clock for cadets to come in and to speak to us and then we would do our jobs and on this particular day we went to the director's office we made our cases and we were walking through the desert on our way back to our building which was several hundred feet away from the director's office and from behind another building there were about 40 cadets that appeared some was just coming up we're walking back towards our building, our advocacy and counseling building. And from across the way, from behind another building, these 40 cadets start running towards us. Some of them were were armed with rocks and sticks and they were hooting and hollering. And in no time at all, we couldn't run. We were surrounded by 40 angry insurgent terrorist cadets. And they were hooting and hollering. And I remember standing there with Yadamo And Yadomo, being taller than me, he looks down at me and he pats me on the head. And he says to me, this is gonna hurt little buddy. I looked up at him and I said, yes it is. And the thought that went through my mind at the time was that I was never gonna see my daughters again. I was never gonna see them. And I realized that this is probably gonna be the last moments of my life. It's amazing the things that you think about when that Actually hits you, and within a few moments of thinking that, I also thought that I was going to fight for my life. No matter what was coming my way, I was going to put up a fight and fight until the end. And the cadets grabbed us, and they started to beat on us. No sooner did that attack—the hooting and hollering, the grabbing, the smacking—go down. I, I was hit down to the ground. I could hear. Among that yelling and screaming, above the yelling and screaming, I could hear my name being called out, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, and something else being shouted in Arabic, louder than anybody else. And the more it was being yelled and the more my name was being yelled, all of a sudden the attack stopped and all the cadets who had been beating us moved away from both Yadimo and I. And I'm on the ground, my head is spinning, I've been smacked, I've done my my share of smacking, but I I couldn't believe that the attack had stopped and I didn't know why. And I started to regain my focus. And when I looked to find the voice that had put a stop to the attack, I could see the face of one cadet walking to me with a smile on his face. You Imagine that, a smile on his face. He's walking up to me and guess who it was? It was the cadet that I had met. A few weeks earlier in my classroom who spent time with me having coffee after class and talking to me about his life, the war and my life. It was that cadet and he walked up to me and he extended his arm out to me and he lifted me from the ground. He helped lift me off the ground and somebody else did the same thing for Yadimo. And when that cadet looked at me, he had the smile on his face and he says, Mr. Paul, it's time for you to leave. It's not going to be a good day. Yadamo and I ran back to our building. We were allowed to live that day. We ran back. We picked up the phone. We called our security division. We told them that we were under attack. This was the day that we had been forewarned. And the security at the front gates of the academy, they were alerted. So they locked the anyone from coming into the academy that day. Yadamo and I jumped into our car, and we were able to leave the academy, and it just became one great big mess inside the academy, but fortunately, nobody died. Now, when I got back home and was nursing my wounds and thinking about this whole thing, I began to question why I had been spared that day and thinking about how lucky I was because I could have been dead and I would have been dead. I I truly believe it to this day that I would have died had that cadet not come in and put a stop to it. In the presence of 40 other insurgents or terrorists, call them what you would, their intent was to kill us and he had put a stop to it. He had allowed Yadimo and I to live. And I'm thinking about this back at my place, thinking, what did that? And it occurred to me, it was the way in which I had treated him on an earlier occasion, with dignity and respect. The way that I had treated every one of the cadets that came into my classroom, despite the fact that they may have been terrorists, I treated everybody in the same way, with dignity and respect. And now I was alive because I had treated him with dignity and respect. He was arrested along with the other uh, cadets and several others who had planned attacks on the academy that day, and he was repatriated to his country. And I imagine that he actually paid for my life with his very own. I'm not kidding. He went against his terrorist cells' instructions. They had given given him an order, and he went against them. And you don't do that. Imagine going against a crime boss a mob boss and saying, no, I'm not going to do what you say. I'm going to do it my way. What do you think that would translate into here in North America, Italy, wherever, let alone the Middle East, terrorists? Imagine this. So I think that he paid for my life with his own. I'm here because a terrorist saved my life. When I started talking to you about this, I asked you, How is it that we change the world? Well, we change it with our very selves. We change it with the way that we treat one another. We change it by asking questions. We change it by not judging each other so harshly that we allow people to express their own opinion without judging them and putting them down. We may not agree with it, I'm not saying agree with everybody, just be this bobbing head that says, yeah, 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 I agree with you. No, you don't have to, but you can certainly allow them to express their opinion, have their beliefs without you breaking them down. And the same is true, is that we may not always agree on whether or not we should vaccinate or wear masks or whether or not this pronoun should be used or that pronoun should be used. There's got to be a better way in which we can all connect because we are from one race, folks, one race We're from the human race. That's one race. We are all brothers and sisters. Take a look at our ancestors. We're all from the same family. Why is it that we're at each other's throats? Why is it that we don't start treating others with the same dignity and respect that we would like to be treated with in return? We've heard this said for centuries. We've heard this said since the beginning of time. When things were written in the book, treat each other as the way that you would like to be treated yourself. Yes, that is so very important. Why should we be so judgmental, so angry? Next time you get angry, why not take a moment and respond to what's happening as opposed to react to it. You don't have to put somebody down. Could you imagine if we all got together and just heard each other out? If warring countries would come to a table and say, why don't you tell me your perspective on this? I'll listen, and then I will tell you mine. Let's work together as opposed to against each other. Change comes, and I'm using that word change, I love that. comes from within, and it's important that we be the best version of ourselves. We only get one shot at this thing called life. When I talk about dignity and respect and treating others with dignity and respect, it's amazing you get what you give. If I give you the finger, if I walk down the street and I give you the finger and tell you to go screw yourself, chances are I'm going to get that in return and maybe even worse. But if I go down the street and I welcome you and I say, hello, how are you doing? I smile. I'm genuinely grateful say hello, chances are I'm gonna get that in return. It's the same with anything. You get what you give folks. And if you give love and you give dignity, you give respect, you're gonna get that in return. The opposite is also true. So decide what you're going to give. I'm here talking to you because a terrorist saved my life. What will you do and what will your rewards be for treating others the way that you would like to be treated yourself. Think about that.